sermon text for today is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. Ecclesiastes 4. Again, I saw the oppression that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressor, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been or has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill is work, in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handful, hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no other, not another, to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. The word utopia has become quite common in our vocabulary today in the English language. Utopia refers to an ideal place, a place, an ideal community where things work and people care for one another. The word utopia was first coined by Sir Thomas More, an English lawyer and advisor to King Henry VIII. More coined the, ther the term in his book by the same title, Utopia. Utopia was the name of an island in More's book, and More envisioned this island as a society that ran according to good values, morals, and principles. Unfortunately for Moore, he was not the king. And Henry VIII did not see utopia the same way Moore saw utopia, largely for his religious opposition to Henry VIII. Moore was a devout Catholic. 
More was imprisoned and condemned to death. Thus, Moore's idea of utopia never left the pages of his book. In some ways, utopia is an ironic concept. Utopia is an ironic word in itself. Perhaps what's most ironic about the word utopia is its actual meaning. The word comes from two Greek words, wu, which is a negation or not, and the word topos, which means place. In other words, the word itself, in the word itself, there is an explanation that there is no place on earth where utopia exists. The attempt to establish utopia in this world has not been restricted to the place to the pages of books, however. Consider how the ideas of Marxism still dominate much of the world today, although the application of Marxism has created dystopian societies and not utopia. Or consider Walt Disney World's original concept for Epcot, experimental prototype community of tomorrow. For Disney, Epcot, Epcot would not be a park, but a city where technology, technological advancements would bring about the ideal society. Or perhaps you've heard of the movement that is happening right now among Christians in Moscow, Idaho, home of the University of Idaho, where Christians are moving to in large numbers in an attempt to transform the society into a Christian-dominated community. Christians who live in Moscow, Idaho, call this movement the Moscow Mood. So why do we long for utopia on earth so much? Why do we desire to find this idyllic society so desperately? And the answer is clear. It's because we hate the results of evil in this world. We hate hearing of injustice, oppression, sin, death. We hate wickedness, and yet we're trapped in it, aren't we? We ourselves are by nature wicked, and we practice wickedness. The writer of Ecclesiastes knows this very well. He sees it all around himself. As a matter of fact, in today's text, the preacher sees, observes wickedness in the world in the same way that someone observes paintings at an art show. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is an invitation for us to observe evil. Not just the evil outside of us, but also the evil within us. Not just that which everyone looks at and calls evil, but the subtle evils of selfishness and the sin within. This invitation to observe the world in its wickedness is not different from God's own assessment of the world. Consider what God said of the world during the times of Noah. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that wickedness of men was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart 
was only evil continually. This is God's assessment of the world. And we know that this is the reality around us and apart from the grace of God, the reality within us. But concealed in Ecclesiastes 4, there's a message of hope. A message of present hope. Not of an utopia that we can live in today, but of a future utopia that we can experience the foretastes of in this present age. It is a message of hope for today because of a greater hope for tomorrow. A message that sets not our hearts ultimately in the establishment of a kingdom of our own. But this message sets our heart in the desire to see the kingdom of God come. A kingdom that's already here today. And a kingdom that will last forever. So here's my main point today. Here's where I'm going. Believers will suffer under the wickedness of this world. But those who are in Christ don't have to suffer alone and will not suffer forever. So I, I have four, four points for today. I want you to consider these four points. First, I want to consider the evil of oppression against the weak. Then I want you to, and that should be spelled W-E-A-K. <laughs> then, you should, then I want you to consider the evil of building a kingdom for self. Number three, I want you to consider the evil of not honoring the good that was done in the past. And then finally, I want you to consider alienation in Christ. So let's consider the evil of oppression against the weak. Notice in, in verse 1 that the preacher is again restricting his worldview to that which is observable under the sun. Okay? So the phrase under the sun for the preacher refers to that which is material and not eternal. So it's like the preacher is, is, is exercising his mind and saying, let me exclude the eternal realities and let me observe only that which is able or which is displayed under the sun. And what is his concern? His concern is that he, he came to this first art exhibit or this first room of display and he saw oppression. He saw oppression. Not just some oppression, but all the oppression that is done under the sun. I think the, the preacher is using hyperbole here. Meaning, I don't think he's saying that he saw all the oppression that has ever been done, that was done in his time, and that will be done in the future. I think the preacher is saying that he diligently set out to understand oppression. He didn't close his eyes. He kept them open. One of the ways to help the oppressed 
is by not turning a blind eye to the oppression that they're facing. One of the greatest tools against abortion has been the ultrasound. As we humanize the oppressed fetus, the voice that cries from the womb is heard. When we open our eyes to oppression, that is our first fight against it. But the oppression is not without aggravation here. On the side of the oppressed, there was no comfort. So no one is standing with the oppressed. On the other hand, on the side of the oppressor, there was power. The weak, the weak had no help, and the oppressor was unrestrained in his might. This is a bad place to be. Now look at the response of the preacher. In verse 2 he says, The dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And if this were not enough, he would say, It is better not to be conceived than to see the evil in the world. This is a very fatalistic perspective, isn't it? It's the perspective of someone who's saying there is great evil, there is great oppression, and there is nothing that can be done about it. My existence helps this in nothing. The preacher is saying there is nothing that he can do, so he might as well die. That's what he's saying. And friends, if there is no God in heaven, the preacher is right. The preacher is right. Sometimes we do this, don't we? We embrace fatalism. Sometimes when we see oppression, instead of running to God, we run to fatalism. We see ourselves as too small to make a difference, so we think like the preacher, there's no hope. Sometimes, on the other hand, when we see oppression, instead of running to God, we run to idolatry. An idolater's response is one that sees the solution for oppression outside of God. Sometimes believers that uh, sometimes we believe that our deliverance is going to come through politics or through election of a president or through the Supreme Court. Perhaps we think that our deliverance is going to come through social activism and that we must put hope in institutions of this world. But all of this is a lie. We buy into the lie that the future of our nation is in the hands of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. We lose hope when things don't go our way politically or socially, and we turn to the idols of politics and cable news. But friends, the future of our nation is in the hands of God. This is why when we see injustice, we're called to act and not embrace fatalism or idolatry because politics or social activism do not deliver eternal results. 
but God does. Remember what we're called to do in the beautiful words from prophet Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice. And to love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. So let's have a a different perspective on injustice in this world. Not a fatalistic perspective where we see the power on the side of the oppressor. But let's remember that God is for us. And if God is for us, the power rests on our side. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Do you see how that change in perspective now puts us in a place where we don't have to say, there's nothing I can do, therefore I I should just die. This change in perspective helps us realize that with God, nothing is impossible. So where do you see oppression in the world around you? Why don't you run to God and ask Him to help you fight that for His glory and for the good of your neighbor? Let us not have an idolatrous, idolatrous, idolatrous perspective of the solution for injustice. When we place our hope in government of activism, but let us promote justice as we are able So you ask, how? Well, here are some simple ways that today you can promote justice in the city around us. First, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone you meet. There's no ultimate justice apart from the promises of the gospel. Don't just tell people God bless you or other Christian jargons that people from all kinds of world religion can say amen to. Say things that people who are not Christian would say, well, that's different. The greatest oppressions human face is their allegiance to Satan. And true liberty comes through Christ. Through the knowledge of Christ where our sins are forgiven and we are set free. Just listen to what Jesus says, quoting the book of Isaiah in Luke 4. The Spirit anointed me to proclaim the good news in order to do what? To set at liberty the oppressed. Jesus came to do away with oppression. So, the preacher in his restricted worldview is not right. We need to be alive. And alive in Christ and bringing others to that same hope. But here are some other ways that you can help the oppressed around us. We have a food pantry at our church that helps over a dozen families every uh, two, two or three times a month. Have you considered giving financially towards the food pantry? Donating kitchen staples. Volunteering your hours on Monday morning. Is Sherry over here? She's not here. Sherry's always sitting over here. She would love to tell you more about the food pantry. Or call the office and we'll tell you how you can do that. Help lessen the oppression around us. Here is another way. On Mother's Day this year, we're going to start an official partnership with the foster care agency, One More Child in Nana's House. Would you consider getting involved with this partnership? Would you consider being a foster parent? 
Over the summer during VBS week, we're going to host a mobile dental unit here that is going to serve the uh, members of our community for free. Would you consider volunteering your hours so that we can help those who are suffering and in pain around us? Here's one more way I told you earlier. Every first Sunday of the month, we collect a benevolence offering where those who are in need among our covenant receive help. Would you consider giving towards the benevolence fund? If you don't know what to do and you want to do something, call your deacon and ask your deacon who among those that you oversee could use some help. This, friends, is how we who are alive promote justice among us. We don't just proclaim the gospel, but we live it out. So, so let us do that. We don't stand hopelessly in the face of oppression. God stands with us. Now, second, let's consider the evil of building a kingdom for self. As we move from our first display, art display, into our second art display of evil, the oppression moves from the outside of us to the inside of us. The preacher here deals with the ethics of work. The Bible has a lot to say about work. The Christian worldview has always promoted good, good and strong worth ethics everywhere it's gone. That is good. So it's hard for us to think of work as an evil. But God cares about the heart of our work. And he cares that our work promotes the building of his kingdom and not our kingdom. In this second point, the preacher, and by the way, from here on for the next several chapters in, in Ecclesiastes, the preacher is going to become very proverbial, very Proverbs-like. Some verses are going to seem like a standalone alone advice. And we're going to look at those carefully. These verses approach the wisdom of work from different angles as the preacher instructs us. So think of these next verses that we're going to look at as, as a diamond. In each angle that you examine that diamond from, you see a different beauty in it. The preacher's point is that God is not simply concerned that we work. He is. And that we work hard. He wants us to do that. But God is concerned with our motivation behind work. In other words, just as it is evil to oppress the weak, and that's very clear and easy to see, it is evil to work to build one's own kingdom to, for one's own selfish purposes. The heart of both actions are the same. The establishment of my kingdom. And friends, our goal in life must not be to build our kingdom or a kingdom for ourselves, but to destroy our kingdom and allow God to build his own kingdom over the ruins of our kingdom. Look at verse 4. Again, the preacher sees observes with his own eyes, his senses. And what does he see? 
the source of motivation for toil and skill is a man's envy of his neighbor. So the preacher is saying that those who work hard do so because they want possessions for themselves. They want position for themselves. They want to surpass those that are around them. They want the wealth of their neighbor and they seek to acquire it for themselves even sinfully. This is the message of the 10th commandment, isn't it? Do not covet. Coveting is desiring to have something the Lord has not granted you. The first commandment is, is worship God. right? Worship God alone. The last commandment says the same thing. Worship God alone. Don't covet. Be satisfied in God. But what is the problem with coveting? What is the problem with desiring something that the Lord has not granted us? The problem is that when we covet after what God has not given us, this desire becomes our God. Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness. And what is covetousness? It is idolatry. It is the worship of things rather than the worship of God. So the danger of workaholism is not simply that it causes us to be busy. The danger of workaholism is that it leads us to worship the wrong God. It, leads, it really leads us to worship the God of self. Look at verse 7. Again, the preacher sees a hard worker. And yet, he is alone. He has no other. He has no son. But it's not a problem of fertility only. He doesn't have a brother or anybody so that he can share the fruit of his labor. Why? Because he worships work. He worships work. Look a little later in verse 8. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. This is the constant pursuit of one who works to build his own kingdom. The pursuit of riches never satisfies because riches are not eternal. The picture of the ground, the streets being paved with gold in heaven is a reminder to us that gold in heaven is something that doesn't really matter. And I think that the idea is not so much that there are more precious things in heaven than gold, but that God is in heaven. And we won't care about gold or silver in heaven. We'll care that God is there. Riches just stay here. They corrupt with rust and moth. For the preacher, the pursuit of earthly riches is the quintessential vanity. It's literally chasing after the wind. Jesus, he reminds his followers of this in the parable, doesn't he? Luke 12, verses 16, 16 to 21. And he, that is Jesus, told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Instead of being satisfied, look at what he does. 
And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, listen to how this sounds like the message of Ecclesiastes. So you have ample goods laid up for you for years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, building a kingdom for self, building a kingdom for God. You see, Jesus is saying that the earthly wealth is, not, is of no eternal good. The fool's soul is not spared by earthly wealth. So, bringing a, building a kingdom for self can feel pretty good at this age, but in the age to come, will prove to be this kingdom will prove to be a house of cards. Now notice that the solution for an idolatrous approach to work is not idleness. And by the way, I'm, I'm borrowing some thoughts here from the book, The Gospel of, at Work by uh, Greg Gilbert. The solution for idolatry is not idleness. Verse 5, the fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. It's a strange statement and a strange picture, isn't it? But it is proverbial. It, it means that the fool does not use his hands to work. The folding of the hand from Proverbs 6, 6 right? Consider the ants. So he doesn't have food to eat. So what does he do? He eats his own flesh. This is absolutely not the solution for workaholism, for building the kingdom for self. So verse 6, as it is often the case in Proverbs, suggests a more balanced approach. Instead of being busy with both hands or folding the hands, it says that better is a handful of quietness with a handful of busyness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. In other words, work and rest. Work and rest. So, when you wake up in the morning and you head off to work, what motivates you? Do you ever think, I am going out to build the kingdom of God? Do you have a good balance between work and rest? Do, do you have time for the other things in life, like family, and leisure, and growth, and church? Is work sometimes escape for you? Life is hard, so I'm going to work a little longer. Do you view work as worship? Do you view the works of your hand, the work of your mind that is being produced as a way to exalt God? These are all antidotes for the worship of self. It's possible, right, to be the hardworking man 
for everyone praises, and yet sin while work. It's possible to homeschool our children with the goal of building our own, ki- our own kingdom. It is possible to proclaim the gospel and shepherd a church with the goal of building a kingdom for self and not building a kingdom for God. What about if I'm retired? Can I still work for the glory of God? Oh, absolutely you can. Absolutely you can. Friend, you retire from your secular work, you retire from your boss, never retire from the work of ministry. You will rest from your labors on this earth when you die. But until you die, live for the glory of God. Live for the good of the church. Live for the hope of the lost. Children, what about you? You don't get paid for your work. And yet, can you can you do things for the glory of God? Can you, in your tender age, build the kingdom of God? Okay, I'm going to tell you a story, okay? I want you to come with me in this story. This story is about two boys. And... They both have messy rooms, okay? And any of you out there have a messy room? I'm sure you do, okay? Now, one of the boys hears from their parents, from their parents, go clean your room and struggles with it. The other boy hears from their parents, go clean your room, and he struggles with it first. But the first boy thinks this, my birthday's coming up, and I really want a PS5, all right? So I am going to clean my room, and if I clean my room real good, then my parents will give me a PS5. All right, so the kid goes and cleans his room, and the room looks spotless. Wow. The parents are proud of the son, and they say, good job. You're such an obedient child. Question. Was this good? In a sense, we want to say yes. But was the motivation for cleaning the room, the heart behind it, right? The reason why the kid wanted to clean his room, good. The answer is no. He wanted something for self. He wanted to gain something. So at the end of the day, the room got cleaned. And yet, that kid sinned in doing that. Now, this other kid over here remembers my Sunday school teacher taught me That children should obey and honor their parents. I hate cleaning my room. But I am going to go ahead and do it because I believe. I believe the Bible. I believe it's good to honor my parents. I believe it's good to obey them. And the kid goes and cleans the room. The room looks spotless. The parents are so proud. What about this one? Is that a good thing? Yes. What about the motivation behind behind this kid's action? Is that good? Yes, yes, this kid wanted to honor parents, and in honoring parents, this kid honored God. So in other words, this kid did a good work by faith, okay? So now, now, obedience is important, but obedience is not enough. If you obey your parents because you want to advance, because you want to do things, you want to get things that are good for you, children, That is not the right motivation. God does not see that and think good. But if you obey your parents because you love God, because you believe Jesus and you believe his word, 
at your age, you are building the kingdom of God. So build his kingdom. Build his kingdom even at a tender age. Obey because you love and you believe God. The good thing is that we're not left without directions about what to do with our vocational life. We're not left without directions about how to work in a way that is not idolatrous or idle. The Lord tells us how to work in order to build his kingdom and not ours. Listen to the words of Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So in other words, building the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance and a reward. What are these? Eternal promises. You are serving the Lord Christ. Well, let's turn now to our last point. The evil, well, to our last point before our conclusion. The evil of not honoring the good that was done in the past. The last art display that the preacher tells, uh, takes us to is a story room. The story room uh, contains a story about an old and a young king. It's a surprising story because we often associate age with wisdom. And that's often the case. It is not surprising that the most used word for a pastor in the Bible is the word elder, right? Because age is associated with wisdom. But in this story, this is not the case. The story is surprising because folly comes from the old and wisdom comes from the young. Wisdom is not something that comes guaranteed to us because of age. Instead, the Bible depicts wisdom as a virtue that must be pursued. And if we fail to pursue wisdom through our lives, we should not expect to have it at old age. Psalm 119 verse 10, the psalmist says, I understand more than the aged. Why? For I keep your precepts. You see, wisdom for the psalmist does not come from age, but it comes from learning and keeping the word of God. So how did this king embrace folly? Look at verse 13. At a point in his life, he stopped taking advice. He stopped learning. He thought he had arrived. One clear evidence of pride in our hearts is when we believe we cannot learn from other people. Proverbs 12, 15. Notice how advice and wisdom go together very often in Proverbs. The way of the fool is right in his own eye. But the wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 13, 10. By insolence comes nothing but strife. But with those who take advice is wisdom. Proverbs 19, verse 20. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. I, I think the application here is very simple. Do you take advice? Are you teachable? Do you change your mind easily when you receive sound words? When was the last time you received a good advice that changed your life? 
Now, the youth clearly took advice, right? He grew in wisdom. He went from prison to, to the throne, and I don't think that here is a case of crime to crown, uh, but from humility to exaltation. The younger ruler had a faithful following, didn't he? Look at verse 16. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. And yet, here is the evil in this passage. He died and he was forgotten. All the good, all the wisdom, and yet it wasn't lasting. The story reminds me of the story of Joseph of Egypt. He was wise, he was virtuous, he was self-controlled. He rose to a prominent position. He ruled well. He helped his brothers. He preserved the life of his family. And yet we read in Exodus 1.18, Now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This is evil, isn't it? To not know those who have done good before you. There's so much good done, not just for Israel, but for Egypt. And yet the name of Joseph was forgotten. This is why the preacher returns to his conclusion. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. Let's come to the point of alienation in Christ. And this is my concluding point. I think the collective evil that we see in our text today is ultimately the evil of alienation, isolation. This is the recurring theme throughout this chapter. The oppressed has no comfort for him. The workaholic doesn't even know for whom he is working. The idol, it's his own flesh. The foolish king secludes himself of his advisors, but the wise young king does not end up much better because he's forgotten. We know this feeling. Perhaps you're well acquainted with loneliness. Perhaps you feel rejected. Perhaps you feel forgotten. Perhaps the words of the psalmist resonate with you in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? The good news, friends, is that God cares about our loneliness. God cares about our exclusion. God cares to do something about our alienation. The reason behind alienation is because we experience is sin. The reason behind the alienation we experience is sin. Our sins create a separation between us and others. But more importantly, sin separates us from God. This is Isaiah 59 verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Do you notice, did you notice here that our problem of alienation stems from sin? But did you also notice that there is a whole paragraph in this text that I skipped? The verses in the middle of this chapter are beautiful. And they're the heart of this chapter. These verses are actually some of the most, perhaps the most hopeful verses in the entire book. You've heard it read before. Two are better than one. Right? Why? Because they defend themselves better. They warm themselves up. They have better gain for their toil. It is better to be together. 
It is better when we are together. These verses are not primarily about marriage, though these are very often read in weddings, and they do relate to marriage as well. But as you can see in the context of chapter 4, these verses are much broader than marriage. These verses are about our deep need for companionship, our deep need for relationships, our need for friends, for brothers and sisters. Companionship is good because it breaks through loneliness, boredom, vexation. It is more profitable when we're together. It is safer when we're together. So where do we find true companionship? Where do we overcome alienation? And the answer is at the table that is set before you. This is where alienation is done away with. This table represents a people who comes together not to build a kingdom for themselves, but a people who hold the kingdom of God in their hearts. So we're not building silos, but we're coming to God and we're entering his kingdom. This table is a table that presents a solution for sin that alienates us from God and from one another. The body of, the body of Christ crushed for us. The blood of Christ spilt for us. Because these are the penalties of sin that we deserve. Alienation condemnation we have sinned greatly against the God of heaven his condemnation and wrath must rest on us but Jesus died to absorb the guilt and the penalty of our sins friends the companion right that we see in the middle chapter of in the middle verses of chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes the true companion is Christ himself he is the one who will never leave us, nor forsake us. He is the one who will always be with us. He is the one who is willing to lay down his life for us so that we can come to him. Would Christ not lay down his life, he would be inaccessible. But because Christ took on humility, took on humanity, and came to, to dwell among us, live the life that we could never live the condemnation and wrath of God does not rest on us because he has rested once and for all in Christ, our friend, our brother. Jesus died and absorbed this guilt and penalty of sin, and he calls us today to believe in him. Do you want to have a friend in Jesus? Believe his words. If you do, if you do, you are part of his people. If you believe Jesus, you're not alone. You're part of this people who is not perfect, but who is being perfected. Who is being made perfect by the grace that he supplies. Listen to Ephesians 2, 12 through 13. Paul has just finished fleshing out some of the clearest explanation of the gospel in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And then he turns and he reminds us that the gospel is a corporate message. It's a message for all of us. It says in Ephesians 2, 12 and 13, Remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, that's all of us, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So now we who had no companions 
we who had no friends, we who were separated from God and from all, can now call Jesus our brother and God our father and all who are in Christ, our brothers and sisters. Oh, friend, don't you see? You don't have to go through the hardships and the evil of life alone. You can have Christ. And along with Christ, you can have his people. At this, point, at this moment, I want to invite the deacons to come forward as we turn our attention to the Lord's table. Thank you. 